sometimes you just want to add a little bit of, you know, a little flair, a little. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. (laughs) Western Christianity has spent the last 2000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church with John and Nat Turney. Everybody, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat Turney. This is my brother, John, over there. Say, hey, John. Hey, John. And you are listening to This Is Not Church, uh, the podcast with the most ass. Wait a minute. That yeah, don't, sound, yeah, see, no, see, don't, don't do that. Can we, can we come up with a better tagline than that? The, We're going to have the, to. The, 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 the podcast with the most hats? The most hats? We're not, no. That yes. doesn't work either. Yeah. No? Okay, no. so yeah. actually at this point, we have the least <laughs> amount of hats that we could possibly have. But as you can tell, um, irreverence reigns supreme here at the This Is Not Church podcast. Um, we're excited to have our next guest with us. I'm going to, I am not going to waste too much time on my my banter. I'm going to get right to the conversation. So let me introduce Shannon to you. This Shannon T.L. Kearns is a transgender man who believes in the transformative power of story. As an ordained priest, a playwright, a theologian, and a writer, all of his work revolves around making meaning through story. He's the co-founder of QueerTheology.com, which has reached more than a million people all over the world through videos, articles, and online courses and community. Yeah, he was the founder and artistic director of Uprising Theater Company in Minneapolis. Shannon is a recipient of the Playwright Center Jerome Fellowship in 2021, in 2020 and 2021. And he was a Lambda Literary Fellow for 2019 and a Finnovation Fellow for 2019 and 2020. He is also the author of a awesome new book, which I believe is available right now, uh, called In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. So uh, without any further ado, welcome to the podcast, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. And feel free to correct any of that that I either mispronounced or got wrong, or I'm assuming your book is available right now, right? It is, yes. Awesome. Okay, good. I, I never know. So we get a lot of times John and I are, are fortunate enough to get advanced copies of things, which is very, very nice. That's a nice perk. You know, you've arrived, John, at some <laughs> level. I know we haven't arrived at any real level, but we are at a, we're at a, a level now where we do get sometimes advanced copies of books and sometimes unsolicited. It's like, hey, here's a new you know, you need to talk to this person. So I, I love that we, uh, that we have made some of those connections and John has done the lion's share of the work in forging some of those relationships with, with publishers and things like that. So I'm really, really excited to have you on the podcast. As John was talking to you before, uh, before we started recording, one of the things that we've been very intentional about is to get a, a wide variety of views, a wide variety of people with, with experiences that a lot of people like John and I who grew up in the evangelical church I mean, we led fairly narrow, bubbled-in lives, you know what I mean? And so our experience has been later in coming in our life and in, 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 in having some conversations with folks. So a lot, of, a, lot of our, um, a lot of our vocabulary even had to change. A lot of our, certainly a lot of our thought processes. But so we're glad to have you for that reason alone, that it, it's, these are conversations that um, we need to have. But if, if you don't mind, we'll just kick it off with our normal question for, for guests. The first time we meet is just if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your, your faith journey and kind of what, what, what landed you where you are today. Sure. So the the Cliff Notes version is that I grew up in rural Pennsylvania as a fundamentalist evangelical, and then many, many years later became the first openly transgender man ordained to the old Catholic priesthood. So as you can imagine, there is quite a journey and a lot of stories <laughs> yeah. in the midst of that uh, that Cliff Notes. And so happy to to dive in wherever feels most fun and helpful uh, for yeah. your for your community. 
wow, that, that, so that it was the Cliff Notes version. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So life as a, life as a fundamentalist in rural Pennsylvania could not have been particularly easy. Uh, what, what, what was that like as, as a young person? Yeah, you know, it, it was not easy. Um, in, but I was also kind of in this bubble, right? I, you know, you mentioned being in a really narrow space. And I think that was, that was true for me too. Um, my whole life revolved around my church and spent every Sunday and Wednesday and <laughs> frankly, other days there as well. Um, yeah. the, the, pastors actually gave me my own set of keys at one point because they got sick of coming over to to let me into the building. Um, so, you know, that kind of tells you what kind of nerdy church kid I was. Uh, and starting in seventh grade, I was also homeschooled. And so really, like my entire social life and community was this evangelical church. And I, and I really loved it in a lot of ways. But this was also, you know, late 80s into the mid 90s. So the internet is not a thing. I'm in rural community. We don't have cable. We had like three TV channels. And mm-hmm. so this idea of the outside world was just kind of like non-existent. I, I was not, I didn't have language for gender identity or queerness or LGBT issues, right? Like that wasn't a thing that I was really exposed to um, until I was almost ready to graduate from high school. And that was when Ellen came out on her show. Um, so that gives you kind of a, a touch point. And, and I remember that like my entire family boycotted Ellen and, and the church boycotted Ellen. And that was a really pivotal moment for me where I, I had started to realize like that I wasn't like other kids, but I didn't really have language for it. But I knew I really looked up to Ellen. And when Ellen came out, I had this like, oh shit. Like, I wonder if people see in me what they now see in her. And if, and I wonder if that's going to get me into trouble. Um, wow. And that was that was when I really started to to be like, oh, I need to I need to figure out how I'm going to navigate this world safely. Yeah, and then watching what happened to what what happened to her could not have been very comforting. No, the, no. the backlash was immediate and severe. Yes. Um, and, and she, I mean, she talks about it now and very candidly. And she's, you know, obviously she she recovered from that, but it was devastating. I mean, because she was on top of the world. Her, her. I remember her sitcom being. I mean, like you know, pretty, pretty much on the top. You know, they she was doing really well, and then she had the audacity, you know, to yeah. to, to 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 run afoul of the you know whatever white evangelical orthodoxy. And she, you know, she's been yeah. You know, these guys want to talk about cancel culture. She was canceled. I mean, yeah, yeah, literally, totally. her show totally. was canceled. Her career was pretty well. So I can imagine that for you on the outside gaining some, maybe some sense of bravery from, from her, but also some, some real sense of caution, like shit. Okay. If they could do that to Ellen, then what, what, you know, what are they gonna do to me? Right. Totally. Yeah. And I don't remember, you know, I don't remember hearing a lot of like anti-gay sermons growing up and we just like never talked about sexuality other than don't have it right like don't have sex <laughs> that bad. Um, you have to talk about 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 lgbtq you weren't supposed to have sex with anybody exactly exactly <laughs> and it's very much assumed right that like well of course you are all good christians so of course you're all straight um so i so like in, in that way i think i i because i grew up you know, before things really got anti-gay in churches um you know, I escaped some of that. And also there was this, always this understanding that like gay people are bad, gay people are 
sex crazed and drug addicts and drink a lot. And, um, so like I absorbed all of these messages, even without hearing really overt anti-gay sermons. And of course that all, you know, that, that lodges in you and you, you start to know, oh, who I am is not okay. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's always, it's always strikes me as very strange how, uh, how, uh, how hateful we can be towards towards people that we just don't understand or don't you know we don't i don't know that 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 whole process so, so john and i could probably tell similar stories because i don't think i ever heard an anti-gay sermon in my in my young you know in my teenage it wasn't something we talked about because like you said it was just assumed i mean we didn't, it didn't you know you might as well come out and preach a sermon about the sky being blue you know then then just tend to come and preach a sermon about you know about how being gay was wrong that i don't think However, if you wanted to know how they felt about it, all you had to do was look at to the handfuls of, of examples we saw in the reaction to when somebody did have the nerve to come out and then, and then you knew exactly where they stood. Cause yeah, then things yeah. would, then things would get pretty vitriolic and pretty, pretty ugly quickly. So, I mean, it might be a, it might be a strange question for someone like me to ask, but it, so you, at, when you're a, a youngster, say like, like a preteen, did you have this awareness that, that, even though you might not have had language to articulate what was different that you just, that, that, that you were not like everybody else. I mean, is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, you know, was looking around at my peers and, and being like, oh, I don't, I don't dress like they do. And I don't have the same kind of ways of moving through the world. And I don't have the same desires as they do. Um, and it really peaked for me. It became very clear at puberty that I was progressing on a different track than other kids. Um, and I, and again, like I didn't have language around anything, definitely not around sexuality, but even more, especially around gender. Um, and I, I remember there was all of these, I, I felt really conflicted because, you know, modesty and purity was a big deal in my oh, church yeah. growing up. Um, and here I was this kid who everyone presumed was a girl and I'm wearing baggy clothes and cargo shorts. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I am the most modest person on the planet. Like, clearly, <laughs> no one right. should have a problem with me. Um, and then they did. And I, I, it took me a long time to like really grapple and, and try to understand what was happening because no one was saying words to me like, you look kind of gay, or we think you might have a problem with your gender, right? It's all of this coded language around you should be dressing differently, or we don't understand why you're trying to look like a boy. And here I, as a, as a kid, just being like, I'm just trying to be comfortable and, and right. move through the day. And like, this is, this is the best way I can do it. Um, so it's just really strange looking back of like how, how that lack of language, I think, was injurious to everyone, right? Because I was trying to parse as a kid, all of these coded messages that I'm getting from adults, but don't really have the, the ability to, to point out, like, here's what I think they're actually saying to me. Um, it's now looking back, I'm like, oh, now I get it. Yeah. We were all yeah. talking about the same thing, but no one had language for it um, or the courage to, to say it outright. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's in some way, specifically within the purity culture, it's re the purity culture, first of all, let alone being damaging and just causing horrible, you know, horrible mental issues. Um, um, but there was a, there was a whole level of hypocrisy to it too, right? Because specifically towards women, uh, that you were to be modest, 
but you were still supposed to attract men. Right. Your job was to, your job was to, to have some image that, that attracted men. So you're, you know, as you're, as you're trying to like grow into your, who you are as a person, you are being in your, in your opinion, modest, right? But you're not following the, the mold that they are telling you, which is like, you're, you're not, you're not dressing in a way that's attractive to men. You're not doing the job, right? Which is the purity cult, which is, again, is, is just hypocritical to the nth degree because you're supposed to be modest, but at the same time, you're supposed to create some kind of like sexual desire for men as a woman. Yeah. So it's just yeah. like ridiculous. I don't and I remember you how I remember being in one of those like purity modesty talks and they were like, it's your job to make sure that men don't sin. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's your job to protect men. And also in the very next breath, they would be like, but everything turns men on. Like men are turned on by linoleum and sweatpants. (laughs) And and I remember like thinking like, what, which is it? (laughs) Right. Like are we responsible or like, like what, how are we even having? So it's just so funny looking back that like the, the hypocrisy was, was just spoken aloud and right. yet no one was calling anyone on it. Yeah, and it became was, this yeah. like, ridiculous conversation. Yeah. And there was no self-awareness, right? That any of this no. was contradictory or I, I can say as a, uh, you know, as a, as a person who lived through that period of time in my life, linoleum was sexy as hell. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I can I can just tell you right now I mean, for Micah, forget about it. I mean, I was, I mean, I remember sitting through those kinds of purity talks. Now, from from my perspective and John's perspective, it was almost as though, almost as though, it was as though the message being sent to us was that we're not really responsible for your th- your thoughts. Women are, and so almost giving us a pass to be cretins and assholes. Well, because it's, well, you know, it's their fault, you know, that they, they, they dress provocative. I remember going to, you know, church camp was always a goddamn minefield, right? Right. Because, you, know, right. you know, poor girls, man, you just could parade around in, in next to nothing. And these poor girls had to have, you know, basically like 1920s swimsuits with parasols and shit. And, you know, I never, never saw any more like knockdown, jog out fights than I did with the, poor girls that went on our, our, to our church camps and the, and the fights they had with counselors over, over the things they might wear to the pool and, uh, all the ways in which they were going to cause men to stumble. And I'm like, good God, I, we were having a conversation with, uh, was it Kristen Dumay? And, uh, she wrote, uh, Jesus and John Wayne and we were having this discussion and, oh yeah, phenomenal book. And, uh, uh un- unbelievable, unbelievable scholar. We love her. Uh, but John and I were talking about this and, Making the com- I made the comment that I was I was just offended as hell, you know that that this purity culture um, assumes that people um, like me don't have the ability to regulate my own behavior, you know, like if I was to go out and commit some sort of assault, that I, I guess in theory I could blame that on somebody else. Uh, I'm like, well, I'm offended by that. That's that's horseshit, you know, and that's a whole lot of pressure to put on young people. So John's right. We had we had another guest on uh, not too long ago who wrote a book about purity culture, and it was just a, it was a really good conversation, long overdue, because I just think that's John. I agree with John. It's been very very damaging. But so let me ask you this question though. So from the fundamentalist sort of evangelical upbringing, I, I'm, I'm getting the picture that you had. What leads you to the Catholic Church? Because that seems like a little a little bit of a strange deviation. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I went to uh, an evangelical Christian college that was associated with my um, denomination growing up. And it was in college that I first started to really kind of ask questions about my faith and and started to realize that um, questions weren't acceptable. I mean, I had always known that, but I was really getting the sense that like, oh, I'm not allowed to ask things. And that as someone who like, I love to read, I love to learn, this idea that my faith could be destroyed by asking questions started to really rankle me. And it started to feel like, okay, well, if like a book can cause me to lose my faith, then maybe my faith isn't as as good as I've been told that it was, right? Like if I can't read this book and, and come out of it with my faith intact. And so I started to read a lot and I was really lucky to... It, and when I say lucky, I mean, it really did feel like a sense of luck to end up interning interning with a, at a United Methodist church with a pastor who he liked to rescue the weird kids from my college and give them jobs. And like, uh, and that was a great space for me because I, I was in a space for the first time where I was seeing women pastors and I was starting to understand that there were faithful people, faithful Christians who didn't look like the people that I had grown up around. Um, and that started to open some doors for me of saying, oh, maybe there's a more expansive world here. Uh, and then I ended up getting a job right after I graduated from college as a youth pastor at an American Baptist church. And the pastor I worked with there had studied philosophy and Christian anarchism uh, in particular. And so he started passing me books and was so great about like meeting me where I was, but then being like, I think you should read this book. <laughs> and so I'm devouring all of these books. Um, and I'm starting to understand that there is an entire stream of Christian thought that actually takes social justice seriously, that reads scripture as as a collection of books of people grappling with their understanding of the divine that says that we can actually make change in the world and that we're called to that. And in the midst of that, I started reading Catholic thinkers and theologians, Dorothy Day, Philip and Daniel Berrigan, and they made a huge impact on my life um, because what I saw in them was this tight connection between social justice work that was deeply rooted and fueled in faith, um, but also for almost all of them, a deep contemplative spiritual Christian practice. Um, and that pointed a way forward for me of, of something that felt like the best of the heart-centered evangelical culture that I had grown up in, but also this deep understanding of scripture and of justice. But of course, I looked at the Roman Catholic Church and was like, they, uh, there is no place for me in that world. And it was many years later, at this point, I had transitioned, gone to seminary, um, and was starting the ordination process in a Protestant denomination, wasn't really feeling like it was a great fit. And someone from the old Catholic Church, which I had never heard of, um, found me on Twitter, and they reached out, and they were like, we would love if you would help us get the word out that we ordain trans folks. And I was like, I have never heard a few people. Uh, so we got on a call with one of the bishops and had a conversation. And I was like, oh, I actually think this is the right fit for me. Like, this is where I need to be. Um, because it, again, was this, was this small ragtag community that was centered on social justice and inclusion and a deep love of ritual, right? And, which is all of the things that I was really invested in. Um, and so then I ended up 
doing my ordination process through them. Wow. So, so for those who aren't familiar, John and I, I, I'm speaking for you again, John, but um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting when you talk to people like John and I who are raised Protestant and a very, very sort of narrow version of Protestantism even, there's a lot of people who, who, who are raised similarly who have no idea that outside of the Roman Catholic Church, there are other Catholic churches. And so we had Alexander John Shia on, who is phenomenal and who is a part of the Eastern Catholic Church, for which he gave us a, a, a proper name, but but there's they have their own patriarchs, you know these different these different you know so most people have this this monolithic view of Catholicism that's all Roman Catholic and they all you know they all um, swear allegiance to the Pope somehow, and yet there is this other there are these other streams of Catholicism. So I'm not, I've, and this is a new one for me. I hadn't heard of the old Catholic Church. So maybe you can just give us a kind of a you know, the Cliff Notes version of, of what is the old Catholic Church? Yeah, so the old Catholic Church is a progressive, independent Catholic group, so it's not in communion with Rome. They ordain women, LGBTQ folks, and people who are married, partnered, and divorced. Uh, it started in the late 1700s in the Netherlands and Utrecht, so it's been around for a really long time. Okay. It came to the U.S., between 150 and 200 years ago, which is a great story, some rogue bishops came to the U.S. and started ordaining people, which I just kind of love. <laughs> like, it does my Protestant heart happy that right. these rogue bishops came over. Um, and so it's a con- so the relationship between the old Catholic Church in the U.S. and the old Catholic Church in Utrecht is complicated, and it's lots and lots of church drama. Um, but mostly communities are very small here in the U.S. Um, often folks are working other jobs and have started new communities that are small, but that are centered on, you know, this kind of inclusive um, and expansive message. Wow. Uh, that's interesting. I, I, my, my story is similar to yours in that when I started to ask a lot of questions, I had friends who started handing me books. And I was I was alarmed to find out how many of them were Catholic. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, here's this. You need to read Thomas Merton. Let's get some of that out of, you know. Hey, here's some Richard Rohr. You need to get this. And I started going, well, man, it was either Catholic or Episcopal or, you know, very, very different streams of tradition from mine. And I started thinking, you know, okay, there's more to this than, you know, the little, you know, Lifeway Bible Church stuff that I had, you know, <laughs> the stuff that I bought in a Christian bookstore, you know, all the self-help horrible stuff. And then these thinkers, and I always thought, I, I love that. And I found that to be a weird contradiction within the Catholic Church. And on, on the one hand, they could be so, so similar to fundamentalists in some, in some, in some degrees. And yet their level of scholarship for the most part was pretty, was pretty solid. Um, some of the, some of the deeper thinkers were coming out of that stream. Was, was that kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that was sort of your experience as well. I mean, yeah, and I think you know, I never really did a jaunt in Roman Catholicism, and so I think I escaped a lot of the connections to the traditional Catholics and some of the, sure. yeah. the scary folks. Um, every once in a while, they'll get wind of me on social media, and then I will have some encounters. <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully, you know, thankfully, most of my experience of Catholicism has been through these incredibly deep thinkers who are so grounded in scholarship and also, I think, have a deep, you know, a deep contemplative spirit and tradition, um, which I which I so appreciate and love. You know, I love Merton and I love all of the mystics. Um, and that's they've been so influential in my life. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I can't help but just keep seeing these parallels between you and um, and and like Alexander John Shia, who, who, who we've had on twice. And I'm not sure if you're aware of his work, but lives in Spain, 
he's he's another openly. He, in fact, when he when uh, when he came on the show, he was like, "I think I'm your. I'll be your first openly gay Catholic priest or Catholic." <laughs> like, okay, not to the first part, yes to the second part. You know, and so and, and so for so many people, one of those, and maybe maybe this is a way to frame this question for 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 you. One of the first places of divergence for people coming out of fundamentalism is the is the idea that those two words can coexist. You know that that there is such a thing as a gay Christian, and we don't automatically go, "How could that be?" Right? And so when we begin to grapple with those two, those 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 two worlds, sort of. So I guess a lot of times I wonder for somebody who is either transgender or LGBTQ or whatever, uh, is there a sense that like, I don't know, like, like you might just give up on this whole religion thing because it feels like the, the deck is stacked against you and maybe go your own way. Or is it, or is it more a, like a, like a stubbornness to dig in and go, no, 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 you can't take this from me. So, I mean, for myself, yeah, um, yeah, obviously, yeah. I definitely feel like uh, there's two things. Uh, there's a bit of a stubbornness for sure. Um, but then there's also this just deep sense that there is something in this Jesus story that I can't shake. And that, frankly, I, I'm so... My entire world has been in Christianity. I can't help but speak in Christian metaphor. Like, I I couldn't leave Christianity behind even if I wanted to at this point. And so part of my process has been about, like, if I if I feel like I can't leave this thing behind or I don't want to then what I need to do is go so deeply into it um, and find out what about it is redemptive and what about it is liberative and, and do my best to do that work. But I do think part of that work is in reaching out to other folks who have been so damaged to say to them that it's okay if you can't find anything redemptive in it and it's okay if you leave. Like, and then my job becomes, let me help you leave well and figure out how to walk away in such a way that you're not carrying the baggage with you, that you're not carrying the trauma with you, and that you're then finding some other, whether it's a spiritual practice, whether it's a communal relationship that is not spiritual, but something else that gives your life meaning and depth and connection and centeredness. Right. And I, and so I, I think for, there are some folks for whom the trauma is so deep that there is not a healthy way to stay connected. And I think it's okay to just name that and say, I can't do this. Like, this is not healthy for me. And when I think about Jesus saying, I've come that they could have abundant life. I can't imagine a God, a Jesus that would say, your abundance needs to be smaller so that you can stay in this thing that has hurt you, right? Like that doesn't make any sense to me. And I think that like abundance has to be the bottom line. And if that looks like within Christianity, that's fantastic. If it looks like you need to walk away for a time, a season, or forever, I think that's okay too. I, I just think that, you know, when it comes to people that go through a process like you're going through or have gone through and still connect to the Christian faith, you know, you get people saying, well, you, you, you don't understand Christianity. You don't, you don't, you, you are not a true Christian. You're calling out, um, the true faith 
what they what they miss is that your heart is so connected to this person who we call Jesus that you aren't able to be silent about what he means to you through your life and through your experience. And so a lot of times it's like, well, you're just, you're just anti-Bible, you're anti-Christian, you're anti-all this, right? And it's like, no, I am so much more connected to my faith than you understand. Yeah, absolutely. That I, I love Jesus and I love Christianity so much that I need you to understand my journey. It's the same with like people who are like, call out certain people in politics, right? We are so, we so connect to our, our Americanness or whatever you want to call it that we want to call out the bullshit of who the, of these people who are damaging and destroying our country. So you, like someone like you loves the story of Jesus and the connection of Jesus so much that you're willing to stand up and say, you don't understand how you're, how you are destroying the journey of other people. And that's, I, I just find that absolutely remarkable. And I, I, I honor and uh, just admire people who are willing to stand up and say, I love Jesus too much for you to allow yourself and your bigotry and your prejudice to destroy the faith that I have. Right. And it, it's just, it's, and we, we, we need more, more people like that. Yeah. Well, I, to me, that just speaks to the level of, um, of, of, <laughs> of commitment. You know, because I maybe because in, in some ways the easier thing might be to walk away, you know, because God knows the the the, the path you've chosen is not an easy one. <laughs> so I mean, who else but somebody deeply committed would actually would actually subject themselves to what I imagine is oftentimes some pretty difficult backlash and probably not really nice stuff, right? <laughs> That's yeah, well said, yeah, right, right, John? Nice stuff. <laughs> nice stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so so walk me through this, and so your book deals with issues of gender identity and things like that, but in relationship to scripture. So walk us through that process a little bit, if you don't mind. I mean, I mean, without giving away too much of the book, because quite frankly, go buy the book. All right. So, <laughs> but, but tease a little bit out about how do we, is it, is it as difficult as we sometimes make it out to be to reconcile, you know, what the scriptures say about sexuality and identity with these different expressions. I'm going to answer that first and then I'll talk about the book. Yeah, um, so for sure. no, it's not as it's not as difficult to reconcile um sexuality and gender identity with Christianity. I, you know, I think that often we get stuck in these conversations about the so-called clobber passages, right? The right. passages that are most often used to condemn LGBTQ plus people. Um and the problem with those conversations is that it assumes and presumes that fundamentalist readings of scripture are the right and only way to read scripture. When the reality is that the ways that fundamentalists and evangelicals read scripture is is pretty unique amongst scholars, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. and and so when we get stuck in these conversations about, well, like, no, you know, we can't really translate that word from Paul and this other thing was a, it's like, no, what you did is you took a bunch of, Versus out of context, which is not how any scholar would ever teach you to read scripture. Right. Um, so I think that that's the first thing that I'm, I'm always kind of encouraging people to, to not get stuck in those conversations because they're not very helpful. And that was also the approach that I wanted to take with the book. You know, we have some really incredible 
books that talk about, like, is it okay to be trans and Christian? Justin Tannis wrote his book in 2003. Austin Harkey wrote his book uh, a couple of years ago. And so I really wanted to do something different um, to build off of that work. Because I think the other thing that happens to marginalized people is that we get stuck having to do 101 work for mm-hmm. people. Um, and we're not allowed to ever build on our own thoughts or scholarship or move past 101. And I think that that's the, that's intentional, right? Because if we stay in 101, then we, we get to keep people from amassing knowledge and power. Um, so this book is really meant to be, it's a hybrid book. It's a, it's part memoir, um, part my journey of faith and of coming to terms with my gender identity. Um, But it's also part Bible study. And so each chapter is stories from my own life and upbringing, but then also an engagement with either a Bible story or a character um, from scripture that talks about how that story has impacted my own story and then hopefully invites readers to reflect on how that might also impact their story um, and and help to see in new ways. And so it's a it's it very much looks at many stories of gender transgression or nonconformity in scripture, um, of which there are way more than folks like to admit or or think about. Um, but it also deals with stories that you might not think of as trans stories, um, like talking about Rahab, for instance, and and thinking through how reading from the margins does something to these texts um, and also opens them up in new ways. And again, not just for trans folks, but for all of us. That was one of the things that I got, though, from... Uh... I'm not sure how familiar I was with, with the work of Rene Girard, but that's one of the things I took from Girard more than anything was that the Bible was meant to be read from the margins. That was what, for Girard, separated that, uh, the Bible from other pieces of ancient scripture and literature were that um, those people who normally found themselves plowed under by history ended up oftentimes being the, the heroes of the story. And Jesus does this a great deal, right? Where he takes people who are I mean, beyond the margins and elevates them to positions of status and gives, you know, the Good Samaritan, for God's sake, could could just as easily be, you know, in evangelical circles, the the, the good trans person, you know, yeah. like, oh, right. So, um, so I love that about scripture. And that's why what you said earlier about reading it correctly, or at least approaching it with the right, you know, from the right perspective is so important. Because if you want to lift things out of context and beat the, you know, beat people up with them, that's, that's, that's easy to do. I mean, yeah. there, there's plenty of stuff for that. But it goes to the idea of uh, reading the Bible, you know, with a flat reading, right? Where we give it a binary, a binary a version of the stories, which doesn't allow for, you know, let's let's look at people, um, you know, people of color, people uh, who are not, you know, within. Let's put it within the United States. People who are not, you know, born in America are considered illegal. Um, immigrants or whatever you want to call reading the Bible from their version of the story completely changes some of the, it's like if you look at the, like the parables of, of Jesus, it changes the perspective of what the parable means. If you are willing to look at the stories from a person who we would consider on the margins, right? So I'm assuming that 
you know, like you're, you, like in the first chapter, you talk about the story of the eunuchs, right? Um, and there's different, there's different versions of what that means. And we can easily, we can easily say, well, this was just something that was done to them. But then Jesus says, you know, in one of the verses that these, these eunuchs are either born this way, choose to be this way or made this way, right? And that's a very broad statement by Jesus that opens up a whole world. And, and I, I, you know, for the first, I'm going to say, I'm 52 years old. I'm going to say for at least the first 45 years of my life, I never, I never looked at that from looking at it from the margins, looking in and saying, okay, that, that connects to me as someone who doesn't identify in a binary sense. Yep. And, yeah. and so that allows people who aren't, that don't fit within the norm Right. And for people, because we don't do video, don't see me doing the quotes that, that we have this binary of male and female. And there, there, then there's this, this whole other spectrum of people who don't fit into that. And this idea of this, what Jesus is saying about the eunuch, which we just want to blow past as, okay, well, that's somebody who was castrated. No, he's literally in this verse saying they were born that way. They chose to be that way or they were made that way. That's a huge statement by Jesus. And with specifically to the transgender community, um, of what that says, what Jesus is saying that you, that all are welcome, that all can come to the, and be within the children of God, right? Yeah. And I think your point too about, um, you know, flat readings of the Bible is, is that when, when you understand how scholars read the Bible and when you, when you look at some of the work that they've done, you have to understand that the, the Bible isn't meant to be read from Genesis to Revelation, right? Like it, the, these collection of texts are in conversation with one another and are sometimes fighting with one another. Um, and there are sometimes, you know, so for every story where you've got a, you have to kill all of the foreigners, you've got another story right next to it. They were like, actually, these people that you're calling foreigners are the great grandparents of Jesus. So like, maybe you should be less weird about that. Right. <laughs> and so I think that we, we do ourselves a real disservice when we don't understand the entire context in which we're reading these texts. And, and I think that's one thing that like for folks that are leaving evangelicalism, one of the best things that I ever did was start to read books about the Bible by historians. Um, and, and, that kind of really broke open things for me. And whether, whether or not you then decide to stay in Christianity, you'll at least have a better understanding of what these texts are, are trying to do, um, and what they were trying to do when they were written and, and how, how they were being used in their own communities. And I think that you're right that it was these underdogs that are writing these stories and they're trying to grapple with, like we've been in exile for years and years and years. What does it look like to be a people again? What what mistakes are we going to make in our quest for personhood and for to be a a, a nation again? Um, and it's and it's all of these nuances that we that I know I sure missed because I wasn't taught to look for them and really read them. Uh, and when I learned about them, it was like oh there's some really fascinating stuff here that is much more subversive than I ever knew before. Yeah. And that whole idea that, you know, that, that somehow the Bible is one big cohesive, univocal, 
you know, piece of writing is something that, that, that had to break apart for me pretty early on, or I was just going to jettison the whole project. But I'm, I, I 100% agree with you, by the way. Reading, starting to read books by scholars about the Bible helped to contextualize it, helped to, to put it in proper perspective. And I remember reading Marcus Borg's book, uh, reading the Bible again for the first time and going, oh, okay, okay. So you, you can stay faithful to, you know, to the way the scriptures were written and actually look at the intent and the, you know, and the target audiences and you can, yeah, okay, that makes more sense. That, that verse gets, con- you know, so, and it's, it's more than just taking verses in or out of context. There's, you know, guys like Borg and others obviously bring so much more scholarship to the table. So for me, that was rescuing. But it was the very thing that, that the people that I told, you know, when I was in junior high and high school that I wanted to tell them I wanted to go to seminary, those were the kinds of books I was told to avoid. Because yeah. oh, those yeah. were the ones that make me, you know, they were going to steal my faith from me. I'm like, no, those are the ones that gave it back to me. What are you talking about? So a little bit of intellectual honesty goes a long way, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah I was just saying, for, and for those who, uh, who, who are, are scared of the, the name Marcus Borg because it sounds too intellectual because his, his books are pretty deep. Uh, Rob Bell writes a really good book also called What is the Bible? Really, I mean, that was like a huge eye opener for me because one of the things that I was never taught within the Western evangelical church is what the, what the, the Jewish faith is built on asking questions about your faith. And that is how the faith becomes more nuanced and becomes more alive for you is sitting in these circles of people and questioning your faith and asking questions and debating the faith, you know, and open and being okay that things are going to change, which we have seen within the Western Evangelical Church. They don't, they don't want that. Uh, I just recently did a, a, a TikTok video on uh, this idea that the Western Evangelical Church does not want critical thinkers. Matter of fact, I think they're scared to death that their congregation would even remotely become critical thinkers because one, they can't push them down, and two, the people in the pulpit don't have the don't have the answers because they've never done the research either. And that's the sad part: is that they're they're not willing to grow. They're not willing to look at this and see that maybe their opinion and their version of the Bible isn't accurate. And then because of that, they marginalize the other, they, you know, they, they become hateful towards certain groups of people, right? And so I guess it's just a soapbox moment more than it is a, uh, <laughs> is a question. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it gets frustrating, right? Yeah, and I, but I think, and I think too that there's something in there about power and control and fear. Oh, yeah. And the ways that those things work together and the ways that, frankly, they work, right? Fear is a powerful motivator oh, yeah. uh, and it's a powerful means of control. And I think that, you know, one of the things that progressive Christians, progressive folks need to grapple with um, is that, the the reason that some of those churches grow so quickly, some of the more conservative churches grow so quickly is because people are terrified, right? And so then what, but it's, it's a lot harder to paint a, a vision of hope. It's a lot harder to motivate people um, through love. It's a lot harder and it requires more of us to build communities of care than it does to just like, scare the hell out of people, right? And so I think that that's something that we 
the folks on the religious left and progressive and mainline folks like haven't grappled well with that of like, what are we for? Right. We can't just be, what are we against? What has to be, what, what is the vision that we're building towards? Why would people come to our communities? Why would people come to our churches? What about this is life-giving? Um, and I think that's a question that we really need to grapple seriously with, especially in this time when there's been so much damage done in the name of Christianity and done in the name of fear and control and power, right? That's what we're seeing that, especially in the marriage of of politics and yeah white American evangelicalism right now in, in very real ways. Yeah. But that so much of that is, it seems to me like, so go just piggybacking off of what you said about fear, white evangelicals are scared to death. Yes. And they are, and I've, I've heard this articulated by so many of them that number one, that they're, they're losing influence, um, that they're, that they're growing, you know, they're shrinking in number, um, certainly. And, uh, and then so they cling, and I, I see this in, in some of the old guard, you know, that they, that they cling to whatever makes them feel safe and secure in their own, you know, in their own whiteness and then their own privilege and power, you know, as they, as they see that influence begin to, 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 uh, to recede rather than ask the hard questions, um, which, which I'm sad to say they, they, they don't seem that all that willing to do. They just sort of double down. These, I mean, I see that, I see that quite a bit. It makes me nervous. Um, it means, to me, it means it feels like we have not reached a tipping point where they're where they're being sort of backed into a corner where they're going to have to ask the hard questions. But I think it's coming. You know, um, I'm having more and more conversations with people my age and, and even older, and I am learning to to not assume. <laughs> so I've yeah. had people come in. You know, I I have a very small little sort of progressive church, for lack of a better term, affirming and all that. You know, and and I see people come to visit, and I go, oh crap, they are not going to like this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am, I am not going to see these people again. And then, you know, and sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's very true. And sometimes I am pleasantly surprised that they go, okay, finally somebody is saying some things that, that I've, I have, I just haven't heard other people say. And so, you know, carving out a space in rural Pennsylvania, for example, is a lot like carving out a space in rural West Texas, <laughs> where you're trying to say, listen, there's, there's more to this Jesus story than, than just, drawing these lines of demarcation and saying, hey, you know, this is this is true and that's false. This is good and that's bad. All these these binary lines we like to draw. So for that, I appreciate people like you who live in that let's let's talk about that term you use, that liminal space. Um how how would you how would you define liminal in that in that respect? Yeah, you know, I think that this this idea of liminal space is something that comes from mystics from Celtic Christianity, from all of those um, ancient thinkers and wisdom traditions, which is which is the the space that is both here and not yet, right? I think a lot about what it means to you know, I, I think a lot about the resurrection um, that you know it, the idea that Jesus conquered death for all time, um, which is a beautiful vision, and also people are still dying. And so how do we both live into that reality, trusting that, for instance, death doesn't have the final word, while also grappling with the reality that people die and that people are still dying around us? Um, and I think that it's this, it's this powerful 
and uncomfortable and complicated space to be in this neither here nor there, neither one thing nor the other, you know, we can talk about it as a space that's between binaries. We can also talk about it as a space that, um, believes in something, right. That there has this future hope, but also is very much dealing in the reality and the present of where we are. Um, and I think that so much of the, the power of our lives, so much of the, the real growth places in our lives happen in those liminal spaces. Um, and we see that in scripture, all throughout scripture, that in those liminal spaces are when massive changes and shifts occur. And I think, you know, when talking about politics in our country, we're in one of those liminal spaces now of we're not where, we're not where we're going yet. And so how, how would it, how is it that we're grappling with and working for change in the midst of the reality that we're, we're dealing with? Yeah, I, I really like that specifically about where we are politically right now, because I think for a, a majority of us, we're, we're scared shitless right now, right? About where the potential for this country to go and to acknowledge that we are maybe in this liminal space where we could change the trajectory for the better gives us hope that maybe we aren't on this trajectory that's going to end us in, in this, this scary-ass uh, yeah. place that we're headed, right? Uh, yeah, so yeah. It's, it's, it's a comforting... I, I've always been very, uh, very not okay with this idea of liminal space because it seems almost like you're not here and you're not there. But as, as we move on this trajectory towards this very scary outcome that could be our future living in this liminal space of where we could still change the, the trajectory towards something that gives us hope and faith uh, is, is I think, where we need to be or we're just going to give up. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we just lost it. So I really appreciate that. I think what we need to grapple with as a people is that binaries don't actually serve us, right? That these rigid roles and spaces yeah. are actually damaging to all of us. Um, and I think that that's something that's been so profoundly impactful um, when I talk about trans theology or reading scripture through a trans lens or even the trans experience, to start to ask people like, who who are very much not trans, right? <laughs> These are folks that would say, like, I am comfortable in my body, I am comfortable in my gender, I know who I am. But when you ask a question like, have you ever felt like you couldn't do something because of your gender? Have you ever felt ashamed of your body? Have you ever felt um, like there was something that was restricted for you um, because it wasn't, you know, manly enough or womanly enough. Everyone has an answer to that question, right? Like I have not met anyone who has been like, no, I've never had that experience. Everyone's got something that has impacted them negatively. And so when we start to then say, okay, great. Well, if we've all had this experience, what do we need to do to like create a world where we don't have to have those negative experiences, where we don't have to shame people for their bodies or their emotions or the way that they express themselves? Um, what we start to realize is that it's not a, 
a slide towards anything goes. But in again, it's a slide towards abundance, towards healthy ways of relating to ourselves and to one another, um, and that it opens up space for people to really be their full selves in beautiful ways. And it's a, it's a gift to all of us. And so... I think sometimes people like look at a book like mine and they're like, well, that's just for trans people. Trans theology is only for trans people or it's only to help me understand trans people better. What I really want to say like, no, it's to help you understand yourself better. And that in understanding yourself better, you will also understand me better and we will be able to be better in community with one another and we'll be moving toward a more just and loving and, and liberative and liberatory world. Yeah, and then and then isn't there that then there also is that that very real possibility that in that if I can read your story and I can find um, something in your story that resonates with my story, then some of those little walls that we've built up between ourselves begin to come down, right? Absolutely, I'm hundred percent convinced that that genuinely honest people their biz, their biases cannot survive interaction with real people. You know what I mean? Like you actually start to form relationships with people. And unless you're just completely emotionally and intellectually bankrupt, uh, you cannot walk away from those experiences without questions, right? That, that's, that's what did it for me. It, there, there was no, I don't know that I would have been ready to read the books that I've read and do some of the research I've done if I had not first formed those relationships and decided that I, well, I can't continue to think of all of these people this way when these two people and that person and that guy and that, are, are amazing, wonderful people. And that's no longer jiving with the caricature I had, I had been, I had been fed about what, what, you know, either gay or trans folks were like. And so all of those things start to crumble. I love it, man. That's what I love about the whole, that's why, that's why I love what you just said. Your, your book is, is hopefully for everybody to, to begin to see ourselves in each other's stories and then let the rest of the stuff. I mean, it's not that it's unimportant but it cannot be the sole defining characteristic, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we're human beings who have, you know, hopefully uh, uh, the potential to connect with, with the divine and with one another, right? And that's why I always encourage folks, you know, it's, it's not helpful often to debate Bible verses or to argue about things um, because it becomes this like tit for tat. You're going to quote your verse and I'm going to quote mine. What I have found over and over again is that when I share my story, that's when things shift and change because we can argue facts, we can argue Bible verses, but it's really hard for someone to argue with a story. Um, and when I can say, like, this is how this has impacted me and this is how I moved through the world and this is what my faith means to me, suddenly the tenor of the conversation shifts um, and we're able to relate to one another on a different level and in a different way. And that doesn't always mean that we agree. And it doesn't always mean that people walk away convinced that it's okay to be trans or whatever. But it is a lot harder for them to walk away unmoved. Yeah. Right. I, that's I, really yeah. And I think yeah. that that's really important. Yeah. I had, I, you know, are, um, as I'm reading your biography and I, re I realize that you have a theater background, so I have a theater background too. And it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't for theater, if it wasn't for a music teacher when I was in high school to ask if I would play bass in a local theater production, 
my journey down this idea of people who are, again, in quotes, different than me are more like me than I, than I was ever told would never have happened. Right. So I'm, I'm stepping into theater as a 17 year old, shy, nerdy, heterosexual white dude. And I'm introduced to this world that's so different than what I've been raised as. And here I'm amongst these, uh, gender fluid, you know, homosexual, gay, lesbian people. And I get to know them. And once you get to know them for who they are in their heart, you can't unsee that, right? You can't unsee the, the beauty of who they are. You can't unsee the, the similarities between you and them that you've always told didn't exist. And you realize that they love and they hurt and they, and they strive and they want the same things that I do. They want love. They want acceptance. They want, they want connection. And then you're like, Oh shit. I've been, I've been sold a bill of goods for so long. So I, I, you know, I, I praise and I, and I thank my music teacher as a 17 year old for kind of accidentally pushing me into this environment, right? Of realizing, cause I, for the first 17 years of my life, I was told that these people are sinful. They are degenerates. They don't, they, they don't, they don't follow a biblical connection. And then I'm like, Oh yeah, that's, that's. So it was, the, it was the beginning of my like complete breakdown of what faith meant and what religion meant, what the Bible meant. And then here I am, you know, I'm now a 52 year old man still trying to connect this all. Right. But experience with people who aren't like you is going to be the difference between understanding and not understanding. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that that's, um, I love theater. Theater saved my life. Um, and it's why I'm so passionate about storytelling because I think that stories are the way in, um, stories are the way into creating empathy. Uh, and it's, it's, also so important then when we're having these conversations about who's telling the stories, what stories are we telling, what stories are being seen, that we talk about access to stories that we don't normally get to see. You know, it's still in the, in the United States, like only 1%, I think, of, of people have know a trans person, which is, a really small percentage. Uh, and so it becomes then vital that the stories that are being told about trans people in the media, in theater, uh, in our books, like that they're, that they're right and that they're accurate, accurately represent the community. Um, because for some people, that's the only kind of in, that's the only kind of person that they're meeting. That's the only trans person that they know is in this film or this TV show. Um, and it's not surprising, you know, when we talk about when, when gay marriage became more acceptable in the United States was when Will and Grace was incredibly popular. Like they, we can track that having that on network TV made a big difference. And so it's also not surprising that right now in this time, we're seeing more and more people trying to ban books with trans characters, trying to make sure that TV shows with trans characters get canceled, right? Like all of these things, it's all connected. And so it's, it's, I just, it feels so important to like name that 
that we have, that part of, I think part of the work is to make sure that these stories are being told, but also part of the work is for folks to seek out these stories, to seek out books by trans folks, to seek out media by trans folks and make right. sure that you're purchasing it and consuming right. it um, yes. because it's really important. Well, and Nat and I have a cousin who is transitioning. So Lucas, if you're listening, <laughs> you have now been mentioned, I think, three times on our podcast. <laughs> so, and it's a scary ass time for anyone yeah. who's in that process, right? Because we see the political spectrum right now that's absolutely opposed to any of this, of trying to find who you really are as a person, right? And to open up to and accept who you've always been, but we're afraid to acknowledge. And so for Nat and I, you know, we have a cousin who, um, who, like I said, is transitioning and is transgender and, um, was the shyest, hardest person to talk to. And then as, as he transitions into who he's always meant to be, who he always was inside. And he came and visited me. He doesn't live in the state anymore. And he came to visit me. And he came, this was like, I'm not, I, I don't know how to describe this. The shyest person I've, one of the shyest people I've ever known. Hard to talk to, super awkward, doesn't, doesn't look you in the eye. He walks up to me, looks me in the eye, gives me a hug. The smile on his face is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. Because he is acknowledging who he is. He is finally accepting who he is. And, it was like everything in my power to not break down and just uh, like I'm about to cry right now. I, everything in my power to not just fall apart and cry because I finally saw the beauty of who he has always been, but was afraid to acknowledge as who he is. And this country has decided for whatever reason that these people don't matter. And it, it's, 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 I, I can't even imagine for someone who's in that, who's in that process. I'm outside that process, right? I'm a white, middle-aged, cisgender man. And, you know, I don't have to worry about what, what politics say about me. I can't even imagine the courage that it takes to continue to move forward to become who you were always meant to be. Yeah, you know, I think that story just so beautifully illustrates the lie, right? That trans people must be miserable and right. mentally ill and whatever to quote unquote do this to themselves. And it's like it, the trans folks that I've met that I know, you know, my own story has just been about an unfolding of beauty and passion and power and, and self-determination and groundedness, right? That, that, that this unfolding of ourselves and our understanding of ourselves just brings so much beauty to our lives and to the world. And that like, you have to just be intentionally deceiving if to miss it, right? <laughs> like, yeah, there's no absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and be like, oh yeah, they're so much more miserable than they were before. It's like, no, no. But I think that, you know, your, your point that it is, it's a terrifying time to be trans, uh, in this country, in the world. The, the, the rise of hatred is, is loud. It's, it's, it's vociferous. Um, it's violent. And I think it's because they know that they can get away with it. Right. 
as we're a small minority of people because even people within the LGBT LGB community are sometimes on their side uh, with not wanting trans folks to exist, right? Like all of these different reasons, which is why it's so vital right now that people who consider themselves in solidarity with the trans community, that you get loud about your support, that you call out hatred wherever you see it, in your communities, in your online Facebook comments, right? Like it's not enough anymore to just tell trans folks that you love us. Like you have to be going after the folks that are doing harm, like because that's the only way that we're going to push the needle because the trans community isn't big enough to push it ourselves. Like we need all hands on deck uh, to do this work. And so, and there are lots of ways that you can get involved wherever you are. And so it's just I just want to like call in all of the allies to be, to say, we need you now. Like, this is the time. This is the moment. Um, this is the moment to, to step up and, and really be in solidarity with us and to follow our lead, right? Listen to trans folks. They'll tell you, they'll tell you what we need right now. And, um, and there are ways to get involved. Yeah. That's a, that is a, it's a powerful way to, to maybe wrap this up, call to arms. Uh, but I, I, I love that last little bit. Let, let y'all lead the way. I think yeah. very, very often people like John and I, not us, but people like us, <laughs> we, we want to chime in. We want to chime in. And then, and then of course, it, you know, I it, turn this all around and make it about me. No, no, no. I, I, I'm very, very happy to follow the lead of people that I know. And your, your statistic about 1%, I think is right on. I mean, I, I can, like John and I, I my, my personal experience is my cousin and, and someone who works for me. And I, I'll tell you the, uh, my cousin's experience, I've witnessed from afar, even within our own family, it got ugly. You know, it got ugly. I watched this individual that worked for me for a while struggle, not with so much day-to-day acceptance of, of who they were. I watched them grapple with the medical side of this, which was a minefield. And I, and I, and, and I watched I watched them break down and cry multiple times over not getting the procedures that they were entitled to um, because insurance companies were inhuman and doctors were able to be openly ugly and biased and say, no, I'm not doing that. So there's, there's, there's a lot of work to be done, not just on the, um, on the political side, but even on just the basic human rights side. Um, yeah, the actual delivery of, of services that everybody else takes for granted. Yeah, there's a ton of work to do. So yeah, you're right. Allies, you know, time to get out of your safe, your little safe zones. And, uh, you know, time to be heard. I, I agree hundred percent. So we're, we're, uh, we're, we're glad to have this book out. I think that's going to be very helpful. I'm going to push it to anybody that I know will push it pretty hard on the show by the book, man. If for no other reason, then, uh, then to hear the stories. And I think, like you said, the power of story is, is profound. Um, I think it is one of the last true ways we can, we can move the needle because you're right. The, the, you know, we can, we can trade Bible verses all day long. I can, I can play, I can play Bible whack-a-mole just like anybody else can. And, uh, but the stories are, those, those are the ones that stick with people and actually have the power to make some, some substantive change. So we will link to your, to your book in the show notes, all of your, whatever social media you've got. I just want to, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for taking the time. We always love to hear the stories. Uh, It's been a tremendous conversation. John, do you have anything to say before I, before we part? No, I just I just want to echo what my brother said and just thank you for you know being uh, willing to come on the podcast, 
talk about this, uh, talk about these issues that really, I mean, it's, it's so important right now with the political views of this country and how openly anti-trans this country is willing to be, uh, specifically from our political leaders who have been, been emboldened for whatever reason to stand up against just the, just the basic just the basic, okay, you know, just the basic love of people has just been abolished to to the level of hate that I just i i've I've seen you know I've lived through some pretty some pretty random weird shit over the last few you know last few decades, and this this is some scary ass time. Uh, the way this this uh, country has decided to just I, I, you know, a lot of times I feel like we're right back in the 1950s, and it's like um, it's. We need to stand up. We need, it's going to need, it's going to take another just very loud minority, unfortunately, of people saying enough is enough. You can't, you can't, you can't do this to our friends, our loved ones, our family anymore. And, uh, so I just applaud you for writing a book like this, for willing to speak out, to stand up for the marginalized, for the, uh, the trans community um, and we hope to be just remotely as 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 helpful as you are and uh, I think um, hopefully we, we we can be a voice that can get some people to stand up and just say enough is enough so thank you very much oh it's been my pleasure to be here thanks so much for having this conversation absolutely we appreciate it thank you for listening to this is not church be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice if you would like to partner with us visit patreon.com slash this is not church where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.